0: Brothers and sisters, the Apostle Peter is very clear in this passage that we will read this morning. We are called to kill our sin and love one another. The Apostle Peter is very clear we are called to kill our sin and love one another. A few years ago, the CBS program 60 Minutes interviewed a man named Jack Barsky. The only problem is Jack Barsky had died a few decades ago in 1955. What had happened was the KGB made sure to give their agent a pseudonym and sent him to the United States with one mission in mind, to rise through the social ranks and gain crucial information for Soviet Russia. Gradually, he he came to the United States, worked his way into New York City in 1978. But while living in the States, his idea of this quote-unquote evil West had changed. He says this, my sense was that the enemy was not really evil. I was always waiting to eventually find the real evil people and I didn't find them. I wanted to really hate the people in the country and I couldn't bring myself to hate them, not even Dislike them. A few years after being in the States, he finally defected, and this is what he said. My loyalties to communism and the homeland in Russia, they were still pretty strong. My resignation, you could call it a soft defection. It was a hard battle for Jack Barsky. A hard battle between two wills. Until one day, the gig was finally up. In our homeland of Pennsylvania, he was pulled over to the side of the road by a Pennsylvania State Trooper, and a man in regular clothes came and approached the car, and in a calm voice, he said, roll down the window, Jack. My name's Special Agent Riley, and I'd like to have a word for you, with you. Jack had quite an astonishing response. He didn't cower in fear. He looked into the FBI agent's eyes and said, What took you so long? After proceeding to interrogate him and get answers from him, the FBI actually fulfilled his lifelong dream and made him an American citizen. He's now married, he has children, and he has completed his journey from a hardline communist to an American patriot. And in summarizing his journey, he closed with this in the interview. This kind of double life wears on you. I'm not a German anymore. The metamorphosis is complete. I fear that some or many of you sitting here this morning are in a similar situation to Jack Barsky. What I mean by that is you're living two lives. There's a battle between two wills. When you're around the world, you have the mask of the world on. And then when you're in your Christian community, you feel free to take it off. May I tell you, brothers and sisters, that ought not to be so. We are called by the apostle Peter to unveil our faces, to show our true obedience to the risen Savior in the world and in Christian community. It may be scary to cut ties with your past identity, but like Jack Barsky said, the double life wears on you. My encouragement to you this morning is that you would kill the past life that you would kill your sin and live to God. That's why your main point for today is this, kill your sin and love one another. Let me pray and then we'll start. Father in heaven, we need your grace even now. Your people are often spiritually dumb. We ask that you would quicken our spirits, open our eyes to see your word clearly. Direct our eyes to the risen savior, Jesus Christ. It's by his name we pray, amen. So after showing his theme in the first one and a half chapters, maybe two chapters, he turns his attention to the pragmatic, practical ways of what it looks like to live as a Christian in a pagan culture. And I want you to flip back, if you have your Bibles or your packets, to 1 Peter 2.24, Jordan gave a sermon on it a few days ago. The structure of today's passage follows this verse very well, it says this, he, Christ, himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. What does it look like to live as a Christian in a pagan culture? First Peter 2.24 tells us that we are to die to sin and live to righteousness. You can think about it this way, our sinful nature is like an overgrown forest. And as Christians, we are called to pick up an ax and to hew down the weeds, to hew down the brush in order that a healthy forest will grow. The only way you will grow in holiness is if you kill your sin and love one another. That's what the apostle Peter would have for us. Starting in verse one of chapter four, follow along with me, this is God's word. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you Lest we think that our holiness in our life is a result of our good deeds or our works or some sort of self flagellation or self inflicted suffering, the Apostle Peter would have us ground ourselves in the work of Christ. This is your first point. We are called to die to the human will through Christ. I'd like to show you in these two verses, in the first two verses, how Christ is held out as our atonement and our example, our substitution and our example. Look, look with me at the scripture in verse one. Since therefore Christ suffered, past tense, suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Do you notice the past tense occurring in verse one? He says to arm yourself with a sort of thinking because Christ suffered. In the flesh, past tense. And then he grounds all of this in the purpose, which is this for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, past tense, has ceased. Isn't that something we all want? As believers, we all want to cease from sin, right? We're tired of our sinful bodies, we want to stop sinning. It's as if Peter's saying, you wanna stop sinning? Suffer in the flesh. Now what's going on here? I see some confused looks. Is Peter trying to, to say that, is he advocating for some sort of uh, masochistic, self-inflicted suffering in order to gain righteousness and gain holiness? No. Peter is not saying that it is the reward for suffering in the flesh, that ceasing in the sin is the reward for suffering in the flesh. Rather, he's saying it is the fruit of something else. Peter is saying in light of 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Your sinful flesh was put upon Christ on the cross. That is where your sin died. That is where you suffered in the flesh. There's two sufferings in the flesh happening here. Look there. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, that's one suffering. And then if you go to the next suffering in the flesh, the suffering in the flesh of sinful nature. He's mentioning the bodily suffering of Christ on the cross and then your suffering in the flesh of your sinful nature. What he means is this, Christ is our atonement. He is our substitution. Your sin was put upon the body of Christ 2000 years ago, brothers and sisters. It's dead. He wants the believer to know that they had no part in the killing of their flesh, in the killing of their sinful nature. Don't for a minute think that upon your believing in the gospel that your name was squeezed into the margins of the book of life. No. They were written on the palms of Christ 2,000 years ago. It's finished. It's finished. So many will read this passage thinking that it's their job to to, to pursue, it's their job to, to, to gain holiness, to attain holiness by themselves. But Peter would say, no. Christ has suffered in the flesh. Christ bore your sin in his body on the tree. Therefore, live in holiness. John Calvin said it this way, Christ is not simply to be viewed as our example when we speak of the mortification of the flesh, but we are really made conformable to his death so that it becomes effectual to the killing of our sin. Thank God for that man, Jesus Christ. Your sin is dead. When Christ breathed his last breath, so too did your sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, stop trying to resuscitate your sin. We can see that Christ is our atonement from this passage, but don't think that this warrants some sort of passivity. Look in verse one, Peter says, arm yourself. There's a battle. He says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The end of this command is that we would arm ourselves with a certain type of thinking. Our thinking matters, Peter says. We're not meant to be passive, but active. He says, arm yourself and not with something attainable, but with thinking. Christians are people, Peter is saying, that joyfully embrace suffering. What an alien type of thinking. What makes Christians go from looking at this backwoods Nazarene with disdain to looking at him as the example of our holiness? What does that? Only by faith, brothers and sisters. Only the Holy Spirit can produce such an alien thinking. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives and makes us joyfully embrace the sufferings of Christ. If you think about it this way, the logger just doesn't size up the tree. He takes a hold of his ax and he hews down the tree. In the same way, we are not just to gaze at the sufferings of Christ, but by the hands of faith, we are to lay hold of them and use those sufferings to slay our sin. This is not in us. This power is not in us on our own. Only the Holy Spirit can produce such an effect, such an alien thinking. I have a young two-year-old daughter and I'm looking forward to teaching her how to play softball. And when I first teach her how to play softball, I'm gonna wrap my hands around her and hold on to the bat and she will get the joy of seeing that ball being hit by her. But it's only the sovereign hands of the Father that enable her to hit the ball. It is only the Holy Spirit that will enable you to joyfully embrace suffering as a Christian. If it were up to us, I'll be honest with myself, we'd be like our forefather Adam who in the Garden of Eden said, not your will, but mine be done. Brothers and sisters, look to our forerunner of our faith, Jesus Christ, in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. He said, not my will, but yours be done. What a savior we have. What an example we have before us. This is the sign of those who are Christians, who who are living in a pagan culture, joyfully embracing suffering. Suffering. So now that he has grounded us in Christ, he will move on to the practical nature of living for God. And this is where I would say, he splits it up into two points. Kill your sin and love one another. Very simple, kill your sin and love one another. The first is to kill your sin. And the means he does this is suffering. Look in your second point. We are called to live in the divine will by suffering. This is in verses three through seven. I'd like to show how he is ordained Two forms of suffering for the Christian life: one from within and the other from without. Look in verse three of your scripture. Look there with me. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do: living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, origins, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Look closely here. There's two forms of suffering from within shown in this verse. The first form of suffering is the denying of our natural desires of the flesh. We are to stop doing what the Gentiles want to do, particularly shown by the abuse of sex and drink. Evidently, friends, the abuse of sex and drink is not just a college problem. It won't be the last, you won't be the last people that experience this problem. They were experiencing it in this day. And the second Type of suffering in this verse is used by the phrase, the time that is past suffices. Do you see it there? The time that is past suffices. Now, what does this mean? This is more a suffering from within of shame. It's looking back at our past life and going, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? The suffering is a reminder of those shameful things. So, why is it that God would use this in our lives? Why would he have us endure these sufferings? There's a real inclination in our culture, in humanity that is, towards abusing sex and drink. People without the gospel are inclined to such things. We are inclined to make idols. Israel was inclined to make the idol of Baal. We are inclined to make the idol of lust and liquor. That's what non-believers are inclined to. And the reason is that it's the idol of self-validation and the idol of self-repudiation. The idol of self-validation is the idol of sex. We are fully known and fully accepted. We want to validate ourselves. It's the idol of self-validation. Drunkenness, the abuse of drink, is the idol of self-repudiation. We wanna forget ourselves for just a little time. Just wanna get lost. I don't like myself. As we look back at this, shouldn't we be overcome with shame? Shouldn't we see ourselves like a dog running after our own vomit time and time again? God is using this suffering. He's using it to produce holiness in us, to say, Enough! I'm tired of the dog vomit. The time that is past suffices. The suffering from within us is a suffering of our sinful nature. John Bunyan, it's at the top of your outline, says it this way Will you have your sins and go to hell, or will you give them up and go to heaven? The temporary suffering that we experience within, the denying of our sinful flesh and the experiencing of shame, is a temporary suffering to keep us from eternal suffering. Kill your sin. Not only do we, are we to suffer from within, but we also are to suffer from without. There's signs of suffering from without. In verse four, look at this. Look at your scripture with respect to this. They are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. As we fight our sinful nature, there will be a suffering from without. Two types, look there. There's a loss of fellowship in that you do not join them And then there's maligning, there's salt in the wound. Why would the Lord have us experience this suffering from without? The Lord is drawing us into closer intimacy with himself. Look to the founder, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. John 15 says it this way. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, I elected you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The life of suffering is the life of an elect exile. We are living, brothers and sisters, in a culture that is inimical to the Christian faith or is against the Christian faith. This is the historical setting of much of church history, though, all the way back through the Old Testament, time would fail to tell of the people, the men and women who stood up against the pagan culture and experienced suffering for their faith. This pagan culture is surprised when we stand for the sanctity sanctity of sex within the confines of marriage. This pagan culture is surprised when we don't practice or support homosexuality or transgenderism. This pagan culture is surprised when we don't run around in a drunken stupor, when we handle our bodies with self-control rather than seeing our intolerance as an act of love, they see it as hate. As a doctor is scorned by his patient, as he pulls the barb out of his flesh, so the world hates us. They tell us that we are on the wrong side of history. This is how we should respond, brothers and sisters. So be it. So be it. We may be on the wrong side of history, But friends, they will be on the wrong side of eternity. The time that is past suffices. And in your discouragement, Peter does not leave us void of any encouragement in our suffering. Look in verse 5 through 7. He gives us hope in our suffering. Look at your scripture, verse 5 through 7. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The end of all things is at hand. As he did in chapter one, he draws our attention to the brevity of life in the midst of our suffering. He tells us there is a risen and ascended savior, Jesus Christ. We have a victory coming for us. He did not stay dead after his suffering on the cross, but he is alive and well and one day soon we too will be likewise. Peter gives us this hope, not only to encourage us to endure to that coming day, but also to give us compassion towards our enemies here. Think of it, if they have eternal suffering and agony coming your way, what compassion that should breed in us. What perseverance that ought to breed in us to endure the suffering and the maligning. In the early church, they had a word for their sufferers. They called them martyrs. Do you know what the Greek word martyr actually means though? It means witnesses. The early church had an understanding that if we are to be witnesses, we must suffer. Suffering is God's means to kill your sin. It's a battle. So we're called to kill our sin. Knowing this hope though, we ought to endeavor to do more than just suffer throughout this life, but we're called to serve one another in love. This is the second effect of faith and your last point for today, live in the divine will by loving. This is in verses eight through 11. I like to show how Peter expresses love in two forms. One is to bear the burden of the body of Christ and the second is to build up the body of Christ. Look in verse eight, we are called to bear with one another. Look at your scripture, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter is quoting one of Solomon's Proverbs from Proverbs 10, verse 12. And he's saying, love one another, ectanes earnestly, stretch out your love. It's It's an uncomfortable feeling that Peter is talking about. There's tension, there's discomfort in this work of love. And as we are stretching out, we are covering, veiling, hiding the sins of our brothers. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that we should cover over injustices? No, not at all. Rather, he's telling us to seek the good reputation of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Like a mother hen stretches out her wings and covers her chicks to protect them. We are called to stretch out our love and cover the good reputation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This means we're called to forgive and restore them. We are called to to bear one another's burdens. We're not called to throw it in their face or called to gossip behind their back. We're called to love them as we love ourselves. Now you may ask how much forgiveness is, is too much forgiveness? If you recall, Peter asked the same question to Jesus and he may be remembering that question. In Matthew 18, Peter said this to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus answered him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Cover one another. Bear one another's burden." The will of God is that you love one another. Not only are we called to bear with one another, but we're called to build up one another. Look in verse nine through 11 of your scripture. Look in your scripture. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Two words I want you to notice there, serve, Use it to serve one another, that's a verb. That's where we get the word deacon. It's to be an attendant to wait upon. It's like a good waiter or waitress that is waiting for that glass to become empty so they can go fill it. There's an eagerness in this service. And then I want you to notice the word stewards. Peter would say, how can you serve if you don't know what tools you have? A steward is a manager of certain gifts. Peter is saying, God has given you gifts, brothers and sisters. They are not yours. Use them to build up the body. Do you see the responsibility that we have to know our God-given gifts and then to use them? We are not called to be unthankful little toddlers that just protect our gifts and don't use them for the building up the body, no, we're supposed to share them. Are you hospitable? Great, host dinners. Are you skilled at maintenance? Great, help that brother or sister out with their car. Are you skilled at schoolwork? Start a study group to help that one struggling with their school. I know there's some of you out there. Are you skilled at speaking? Great, ask your pastor how you can involve yourself in the church. Listen, the church is not a smorgasbord restaurant for consumption. It is a rehabilitation hospital for service. How are you using your gifts? Love one another. So how should we apply this? to our lives, I give you three applications. The first is to believe in Christ as your atonement and example. If you have not believed in Christ, one day you will. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May today be the day of salvation. If you're a Christian, is Christ your example? He's your atonement, is he your example today? Or are you resisting suffering? Or are you joyfully embracing it? If you're drawn away by the example of the American dream or living in this culture like others in the world, let this be a stark warning for you. Christ must be your example. Secondly, kill your sin. Say to your sin, suffer from within. Kill your sinful desires. Say enough. Enough of the pride of self-validation. Enough of the pride of self-repudiation. Enough of drink. Enough of sex outside the confines of marriage. I will not abuse these things. Christ is my example. Say enough. Secondly, suffer from without. This means that you will... Lose friends. In short, as you suffer from within and deny your sinful desires, you will lose friends. You will lose relationships. When you don't go to that party to just get wasted, you will lose friends. When you say to your girlfriend or boyfriend, I will not be spending the evening with you past this and this o'clock, you will lose intimacy. Embrace it. As you embrace it, consider the brevity of life that you have an eternal glory awaiting for you. Third and final application, I would say love one another. We are called to bear with one another and build one another up. You can see that these applications are very similar to what Peter says because these are all commands for us. Bear with one another, we're called to forgive one another. If you have someone on your mind right now through the time of this week where you are bitter towards them, I'd ask you to go and share your bitterness, how you had bitterness towards them and say, I wanna forgive you. I don't wanna hold it against you, I wanna cover you. Seek the good reputation of your brothers and sisters." And secondly, build one another up. Know your gifts and use them. To close, brothers and sisters, you should not be living a double life. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Furthermore, the correct question for Christians to ask their God is not, why am I suffering? The correct question for Christians to ask their God is, why am I not suffering? Let's pray. Father in heaven, By your spirit, would you have us focus on the example of Christ, conform us to his death, and renew us into his image. Make these words stick, Father. Fight this battle for us by your spirit. Give us courage in the midst of a lost and dying world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.